Welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour, news and perspectives on Jackson Demonstration State Forest. I'm Paul Schulman. And I'm Chad Swimmer. We will start tonight with updates from this morning's Mendocino County Board of Supervisors meeting. And then we will go to the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Tribal Chairman Michael Hunter's ongoing negotiations with the California Department of Resources about the fate of Jackson, the People's Forest. And after that, we're going to speak with Matt Simmons, lead attorney for the Environmental Protection Information Center, about a lawsuit that they're bringing on the Russell Brook THP was uh, put forward by uh, MRC up in the watershed of Big River. And after that, we, we're going to take a walk with Stephen Sillette and a group of CAL FIRE people on the, the final CAL FIRE tour that they did recently up in Jackson discussing forest carbon. And Stephen Sillette is, is from HSU, renowned Redwood researcher. Finally, we will hear from Biofuel Watch International's Gary Hughes about the problems with California's cap-and-trade program and its market for carbon offsets. This is tonight's Trail Stewards Radio Hour, and we're going to go back to Gene Parsons on banjo, recorded live at Camp One at the Woodlands. This morning, the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors had a meeting again with Jackson Forest on the agenda, and Jessica Morse from the California Department of Natural Resources came. Jessica Morse, unfortunately, has a long history of being somebody that is known as a CIA Democrat. She spent many years overseas in defense, has very little experience in forestry, and she was appointed by Governor Newsom to be in the California Department of Natural Resources. She is definitely not uh, an environmentalist and has called timber harvest plans such as Casper 500 giant shaded fuel breaks. Anyway, we have a couple different updates from this Board of Supervisors meeting. We've got longtime forest activist Richard Ginger on the line. Richard Ginger is known as the grandfather of the Sinkyoon Wilderness and is on the board of Why Forests Matter with Richard Wilson, the ex-head of CAL FIRE. Richard. Yeah, this is Richard Ginger calling in uh, to tonight's KZYX show. And I, I listened uh, in on most of the testimony relative to Jackson this morning with uh, Jessica Morse and uh, Kevin Conway's spin from the Resources Agency and from CAL FIRE. And there was a lot of really good uh, uh, public response uh, that uh, ranged from how they were getting some things right and not others and calling for a, a moratorium is the only thing I mean, it, it, one of the things that's necessary to move forward on and the whole situation is that Cal Fire is really trying to run and spin everything like they're, they're really going to modify a whole bunch of stuff and everything that's coming down to May 2nd with the JAG. They're trying to keep everything um, with the, the CDF spin like they're really dealing with their co-management and they're really dealing with um, uh, compromises to move forward with but things as they are, really, it's not really calling for uh, and acting on what needs to be done, which is a whole other perspective. And to deal with all of Jackson, the whole thing, they're yeah. just trying to deal with bits and pieces of it and, and uh, isolate everybody. I guess the supervisor passed a resolution that they would like to have a board member uh, on the JAG, ah. uh, which, which uh, for itself, I think, I think that's what they passed. 
that that's fine. But you know, they also you know, there's new people. Um, um, Reno Franklin, I think his name is. He's a he's been plugged into this stuff. He's a Pomo from uh, down in Soma County. He really uh, is a good addition. And there's a woman from the state of Rapids League uh, going to be on the JAG too. But it doesn't make up for the historical imbalance, and it doesn't really put a whole you're holding things up. Calfire wants to call it a strategic pause or anything, but to really acknowledge that there really needs to be a rethink. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and that's a rethink and a redo with uh, um, a whole different frame of reference to look at because what we're talking about is cultural reset, and Jackson is an example. Uh, where it is uh, state forest land, and it's a place where uh, Jackson was supposed to be a model, and it can can continue to be a model for forestry. But the way they've couched it is uh, in un, untouchable um, research that they claim is is essential, and, and that is debatable. And and to keep on things basically the status quo while saying that they're going to go and do modern, they're going to modernize Jackson. That's yeah. all very nice. And, and the co-management is really, you know, um, uh, uh, Vicki Patterson, Dr. Vicki Patterson spoke uh, a day or so um, prior about the incredible value of the cultural heritage of Jackson uh, for the Pomos and others. And that is not really, it's like, it just, uh, it just, one side or this, there needs to be a whole evaluation and protection going forward to honor uh, the cultural and ecological perspectives uh, uh, for the future. And in Jackson, oh, it's small, supposedly, right? 50,000 acres, but that's actually quite big compared to what range that most people have contact with. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's really worrisome having to deal with uh, the spinology that's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Richard. You know, I'm hoping that we could have you on next month and you could talk more. There's a lot more that, that we could get from you and your extensive knowledge. Would you be available to talk next month? Um, I could try and do that. It's, it's going to be an interesting uh, few weeks and few months here. It, it's really, really vital that people pay attention and, uh, and weigh in. Yeah. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Chad, for everything you've done, everything that so many people are doing uh, all the way around. And here are the comments of 12-year-old Ravel Gautier, co-founder of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. My name is Ravel Gautier. I'm 12 years old, a 7th grader, and a climate activist and a co-founder of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. And one thing I'd like to say is that we do want a public dialogue. We appreciate CAL FIRE's attempts at making this review and making changes and making research. But we want a moratorium on all logging until this review is conducted and until the management plan is changed. Soda Gulch, THP, is still scheduled to be cut. And we don't just want this review because if we get this review, then they can keep logging throughout the duration. And we want an indefinite moratorium until this review is conducted and until a new management plan is adopted. So Cal Fire argues that their plan strategically thin and manage the forests in order to reduce catastrophic fire danger, but they cut second and old growth redwood trees. 
They're centuries of years old. They're fire resistant to the extreme. Second growth redwood trees have an 100% chance of surviving a fire of any intensity. And yet they are logged despite Cal Fire's claims that one of their goals is fire resiliency. This is a demonstration forest. It is our forest and it is not just our forest. It is supposed to demonstrate sustainable logging practices. It's not. No matter how much Cal Fire says they're doing, no matter how they say they're sequestering carbon and providing recreational opportunities, timber production cannot be a goal of our demonstration state forest because that creates economic greed. Cal Fire can sell sells these THPs to logging companies. They profit off of these off of these logging operations. That's a conflict of interest in the extreme. The Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to adopt a resolution calling for this scientific review. You must not allow yourself to settle for industry greenwashing and, and continued party lines. You must continue to push for independent scientific review and stand with us in supporting a moratorium while this review is conducted, recognizing that business as usual cannot be allowed to continue for any duration. Thank you. That was 12-year-old Ravel Gautier, co-founder of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. So we were going to have Michael Hunter of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo give an update on his consultations with California Secretary of Natural Resources, Wade Crowfoot, but it is just too long for the show. So what we'll do is refer you on to the show that he did yesterday with Alicia Bales, Pomo Perspectives, and it's on KZOAX Jukebox, although right now they're having some technical difficulties. It is on Monday at 9. We also have a link to that show on our website, mendocinotrailstewards.org, at the top of the media links page. So go there because it's really interesting what's going on now. All the pressure that we have put on the state of California and Cal Fire to change their management. I recommend you listening to this hour-long interview. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with Chad Swimmer and Paul Schulman, and we're going to take a little diversion away from Jackson for an update on the Russell Brook Timber Harvest Plan. We're going to talk to Matt Simmons, the lead attorney for the Environmental Protection Information Center in Arcata, California. Matt, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Chad. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Matt, uh, this is Paul here. Could could you um, tell us about this Russell Brook Timber Harvest Plan and what Epic is doing in the way of a lawsuit? Yeah, happy to. So the Russell Brook Timber Harvest Plan is a Mendocino Redwood Company Timber Harvest Plan. It's located in the Big River watershed, uh, so folks might know where that is. Russell Brook is an area that has a lot of remnant old growth. And so it's a really vital area uh, ecologically. You know, it has northern spotted owl habitat. It has those big old trees that we all love. Just lots of stuff makes it special. And so the fact that Mendocino Redwood Company is going back in there to log is deeply concerning to us. And after reading through the Timber Harvest Plan, we noticed a lot of problems with it where they were, you know, playing fast and loose a little bit with the rules. And we talked to our friends at Center for Biological Diversity about it. and. Our friends at the Coast Action Group, um, we all got together and said, hey, we should really file a lawsuit, you know, in order to stop this plan uh, because it really does not follow the Forest Practice Act and rules. Wow. So I was looking at this plan and it's 
massive. It's like a mile and a half, a square mile and a half. And a lot of it is variable retention, which is kind of a fuzzy clear cut. Yeah, I'll just say, uh, I know that this is an area that a lot of folks uh, are familiar with because of, you know, there's been past timber harvest plans there and past fights about this like exact area. Uh, and so the, the fact that they're going back in again uh, is just a reminder of, you know, how they feel about these places. And like, as long as it's still in industrial timberland, it's never really truly protected, right? Like we're, we're always going to have to go back in and, and protect these places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just something I've been thinking about uh, with uh, all the fights going on. Your litigation is aimed at what? Uh, there's a lot of different problems with the plan. Some of the big ones are not adequate protection of northern spotted owl habitat. The fact that they're not following Mendocino County's Measure V. Measure V, which prohibits hack and squirt. The fact that they haven't sort of adequately described what old growth they're going to be logging and uh, the extent of the old growth that they're going to be logging. You know, lack of protection for water courses. I mean, every, every timber harvest plan has problems, but this one just had so many all on top of each other that we, we felt it was necessary to file a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And is there any timeline on? My understanding is we're waiting for their response uh, and they have, you know, a statutory period to submit their response. But, you know, these things can take a long time and I, I wouldn't be expecting any news right away. We did actually see uh, Mendocino Revenue Company submitted a response to our press release. So that's sort of interesting. Like it's a <laughs> press release response, but not a litigation response. Yeah. Do you know if they're able to do a timber sale or log while the litigation is happening, or is there an injunction? Uh, there's no injunction yet. That was that was what we asked for uh, in our opening complaint. Uh, and so until a judge issues an injunction, they can log. Is there anything that our listeners can do? You know, I would just say support your litigious environmental organizations like EPIC <laughs> and Center for Biological Diversity. I mean, seriously, like, the, the reason we don't do this on more plans is because of just the number of man hours it takes to file a lawsuit. And so with more employees and more lawyers, uh, we could do this sort of thing more often. So basically more donations. <laughs> yeah. So we are, uh, we are, this is not a call to action. This is a, a suggestion. If you feel like it, go to wildcalifornia.org. And yep. do you guys have a red donate button or would it be a green donate button? Uh, I think it's a green donate button. You can also buy our merch. Uh, we've got lots of cool hats and shirts and hoodies uh, that are always very popular because they've got uh, cute little animals on them. <laughs> I I think I can say this. We just approved our like next year's line of merch, and it's this like very cute little beaver on it. Uh, so, you know, if you don't like the Humboldt Martin for some reason, you can wait and get the beaver merch. Man, I, I love the Humboldt Martin. <laughs> yeah, most people do. Well, thank you for being with us, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt Simmons, Chief Attorney at EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center up in Arcata, Humboldt County. Check out their website, wildcalifornia.org. This Thursday at April 21st, we have Wild Oak Living coming up. 9 a.m., join Johanna Wild Oak. For the radio program about sustainability and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. 
This week, Johanna talks with noted philosopher Andrew Fiala about what exactly is a tyrant and what makes a tyrant possible. Fiala shares his hopeful thoughts about how solutions and models from the past can curb the worst disorders of the human soul going forward. This program will also feature an update about local efforts and events to support the people of Ukraine. Join us for Wild Oak Living this Thursday at 9 a.m. on KZYX. This is the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with Chad Swimmer and Paul Schulman. We want to let you know about June 11th, Save the Date, the second annual Casper Forest Fest at the Casper Community Center from noon till 7 or 8 or something like that. And we're going to have music with Mama Grows Funk and Secondhand Grass, Alicia Bale's new band, Daryl Cherney and Holly Tannen and others. We're going to have kids activities, hopefully workshops indoors, depending on the COVID situation and speakers. So put that on your calendar, June 11th, save the date. We're going to go to the last of the five Cal Fire walks that happened in the Casper 500 Timber Harvest Plan with lots of different interesting people being brought forward. But this one, perhaps the most interesting, addressing Carbon Dynamics in the Forest with Stephen Solette. We're going to start off kind of abruptly because of the, the field recording. A number of different people took part in this, and I will introduce them as they speak. First, we have Matt Bostock, the outreach coordinator from Overstand.Earth and also a forest activist and all-around great researcher. There's three massive trees over here that are marked, and looking around the forest, there's other large trees. And you guys believe that you're doing that work to increase carbon sequestration and that it's good for the climate. And I think that we have a wonderful opportunity. We have Stephen Solette here that has been studying redwoods forever and I think would probably know more than anybody else. And we also have two very experienced uh, climatologists here. So it would be awesome to see a bit of a conversation where we could see what sort of agreements you guys come up with. Kevin Conway, CAL FIRE State Forest Program Manager. Yeah, so uh, you want to maybe uh, start with a brief overview of some of the research that you've done or that you have ongoing around... Yeah, uh, I can't speak to the specifics of the Jackson Forest. I'm not here for that because this is my first visit to Jackson the last couple days. So I can tell you what I've learned about Redwood, and then maybe we can go from there. This is Stephen Solette, renowned Redwood researcher, tree climber, and Humboldt State University faculty. For more information on him, just Google him. It's long and quite interesting. Is that cool? Yeah, mm-hmm. you bet. So, <clears throat> you know, Redwood is a, it's a unique species because it's not only the tallest one in the world, it's also one of the longest lived. And it's the only tree that combines a set of characteristics of extreme fire resistance, extreme decay resistance, extreme shade tolerance, and the prolific ability to sprout trunks from its own trunks and its roots. It's the only species that combines all of that. And it's, uh, you know, it's very clear that if you look at Google Earth, so the vast majority of the forests of old are gone. I've been focused on them, primarily because I'm an obsessive tree climber, but I'm interested in what their capacity is. What we've, so let me tell you a little bit about the work that I've done. I've been working on redwoods since the 80s. Um, I have focused on primary forests, which are also known as old growth forests. And my research approach involves climbing the trees to the top, measuring them intensively, 
We've measured all the branches on many trees. We've collected increment cores to look at how thick the bark is, how thick the sapwood is, how many rings there are, so we can figure out how old the trees are and how fast they're growing. And I've been doing this in trees of all sizes, up to and including the tallest and the largest that are alive on the planet. And just in regards to the tall thing, I said there's 1,100 acres or 1,100 hectares left that have trees over 100 meters tall. In all the world, there's only one individual tree over 100 meters tall that's not a redwood. And we found it last year in Humboldt. It's a sick as spruce. And there's only in the planet, there's only 2,585 individual trees over 100 meters tall. So they have a unique capacity. But what we've learned, you know, there's, when you look at the literature on old trees and old forests, you find a lot of the notion that as trees age, they become decadent and they lose their productivity. And what we found in redwood is that the best predictor of how much wood a tree puts on annually by far the best single predictor is how many leaves it has. So at the individual tree level, the trees that are the most productive, that are growing the fastest, if you're talking about wood production at the, at the tree level, are the trees with the largest crowns. And so the fastest growing tree we've ever measured is putting on about two cubic meters of wood annually or about 1,200 kilos of biomass annually. But that's not the forest level. At the forest level, at, for a, a given plot of land, what is the fastest rate of biomass production that can be achieved? It's not a redwood forest. It's sugarcane. Mm. Among redwood forests, the forests that have the highest rate of biomass production are plantations that are fully stocked. But there's a difference between biomass production and carbon sequestration that is important for us to distinguish. And this relates to the issue of tree size and the distribution of tree size. If you think of carbon sequestration, it's not biomass production. It's the durability of the biomass produced that's important. So what we, when we think about carbon that's being sequestered, we hope that it's sequestered for a long period of time. And that means two things that it's going to be able, the carbon that's in the tree is going to be able to re resist fire and survive a burn, and it's going to be able to resist the effects of fungi. How do trees, how does redwood achieve that better than any other tree in the world? Well, it has resin-free fibrous bark that has lots of air in it that's extremely good at insulating the cambium from boiling when there's, a, when there's fire. So it's way, way more effective than, say, Douglas fir at resisting fire. But how does it resist fungi? And the way it does that is by dumping toxins, fungicides, into the heartwood. And it turns out that the toxins that redwoods produce are the most effective antifungal compounds made by a tree. But it doesn't come easy to make those compounds. And so we've introduced the concept of growth efficiency. And that is the amount of biomass produced by a tree per unit leaf mass. So if a tree has a growth efficiency of one, that means for every kilogram of leaves, it's gonna make a kilogram of biomass on average every year. Well, it turns out that young redwoods grow far, far more efficiently than old redwoods. And the primary reason why old redwoods have lower growth efficiency 
is because as these redwoods age, a greater proportion of their annual production goes into that toxic compound that they dump into their heartwood. So if you have a world record biomass forest, anybody know how many tons of biomass per hectare is the world record? guys don't think in tons per hectare. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a metric guy. Yeah. 2.4. So the record is about 4,000 tons per hectare. Now what's the largest individual tree in tons? It's about 400 tons. So a 200 ton tree is extremely large and you can fit about 20 of them in a hectare. So 20 times 200 is 4,000. So if you had a single hectare with 20 200-ton trees, it would have the world record biomass and it would not have the world record productivity, even though it has as many leaves as any plantation. The reason is because it's growing less efficiently. As they get bigger and bigger, a greater and greater proportion of their annual biomass production goes into making this red stained wood. So that by the time they're really big, 80% of what they're producing annually is heartwood. Whereas in a plantation, far less than 50%. So how do you get maximum carbon sequestration? It's achieved in very large trees, in very large forests. If you start out at a plantation, you could have hundreds of trees per hectare they have the same amount of leaves as the old growth forest. They're producing more biomass annually, but they're not producing durable biomass. If you project that plantation forward in time, a lot of those trees are gonna die and they're, they are not full of heartwood. That biomass is gonna decompose and come back to the atmosphere. So the solution for carbon sequestration is not maximizing biomass production, it's maximizing heartwood production and it turns out that the second component of their durability is fire resistance. And we know that the larger trees are far more resistant to fire. So you can achieve carbon sequestration maximum when you have a smaller number of trees, even though that's not the record for biomass production. So when it comes to managing forests, a decreasing number of enlarging trees is what you are gonna be shooting for in terms of maximizing carbon sequestration. So the challenge in a forest like this is to figure out what that balance is between how much we're gonna invest in carbon sequestration versus how much we're gonna be pulling out for timber. And it's not an easy solution, but clearly um, that's the nature of this discussion. So you mentioned these big trees over here. How many trees do you need in a hectare of forest to maximize carbon sequestration? Turns out, not very many. If you remove some of the trees, you create growing space for the remaining trees. And that's clear. So, so there's some balance between the number of trees that we're pulling out and the number of trees we're leaving. And the one concept that I'm, I think that really needs to change is the view that once a tree gets close to a certain size class that it needs to either not be cut or it needs to be cut before it gets to that size class. 
And so a concept that I've been discussing with folks at Cal Fire and other people in the timber industry is the notion that a small number of really big trees, a few per acre, if they're allowed to achieve their full stature, will be sequestering an enormous amount of carbon. And they're also providing really important habitat for biodiversity. So can we get rid of this notion that there's above a certain size that we cut or not cut and start thinking about trees that might be able to be retained for the duration of their lives in stands? And we've introduced this concept in a number of ways. You know, there was a question about, have, are there any examples outside of Jackson of really nice second growth forests? And I would urge you guys to consider uh, coming to Humboldt and visiting the Arcata Community Forest. And there's also a forest called Van Eck Forest, which is a few thousand acres. But they have a model which is involving identifying trees that are going to be retained throughout their lifespan, just a few per hectare that could eventually rebuild the, the stature of the canopy at the landscape level, even though they're not completely filling the forest. So we're, here at Jackson, we're trying to do both, right? We're trying to achieve a balance. And that's, that's the nature of the problem, is what is that balance? And I, I have to say, I'm really encouraged by meeting with various people. Everyone seems to have some common ground here. We want to see the trees vigorous and resilient and healthy. And it's, the question is, how do we achieve that balance and what compromises can be made here? This is Evan Mills, an energy and climate policy analyst who participated in the Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He is an affiliated retired senior scientist at the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and research affiliate at UC Berkeley's Energy and Resources Group. He's also a coastal resident and avid fungal forager. Uh, uh, so I have a question that, that, as though this isn't complicated enough, it's complex enough, uh, there's also the issue of uh, time dynamics, time. And obviously these, these uh, ideal steady states or, or uh, apex states or 20 per acre, large trees laying on a lot of durable carbon every year. So that's a 1,000 year, 2,000 year time frame, and that should be the strategic goal, like what I'm hearing. That's the, the, the uh, mature, <laughs> humanly mature, scientifically uh, informed uh, management objective. Now, so overlaying on that, we have a climate crisis that is defined in decades, which is so much less than thousands of years. And so the question obviously is, what does what the, the pragmatic path look like from today for the next, say, 50 and then 100 and then 500 and then 1,000 and 1,500 years, because we have, a, we have a, a urgent, literally urgent need in the near term. And I don't know that it's the case or not, but is that goal uh, the right goal strictly, you know, or, or the speed with which you get there? Is there a trade-off in terms of climate protection, say, in the century uh, timeframes? help us kind of balance those well, two or, or re reconcile those two. I, I wasn't proposing that the solution to all forest management is to, is to wait thousands of years until you have 20 trees per hectare. I was presenting what's the global maximum mm. and then what, how, what's that look like. Mm -hmm. If you were to promote the enlargement of a, a decreasing number of, en of enlarging trees 
and achieve another old growth situation. There would be no harvest involved in that except the removal of the smaller trees. But eventually you'd get to a point where the growing space was occupied right. and then you would step away from it. Hmm. That's not what, what's being proposed at Jackson, as far as I can tell. On these acres? On these acres. <clears throat> so that would work in places where the goal would be re restoration of old growth or primary forest characteristics, if that was the primary goal. There could be harvest up to a point beyond which you'd have to wait for them to fall over. Um, that's, which is not gonna happen. But in terms of the climate crisis, one of the big things, I mean, obviously we're having a major problem with temperature rise. And even if there's no change in the annual precipitation, California is drying out because the rate of water loss increases exponentially with temperature. So if no change in rainfall happens, we're still gonna have a drier, hotter California, which means more frequent and severe fires. So the big challenge in a forest like this is getting it to the point when, when the fires do come through, they don't crown out and destroy all the trees. And interestingly, if you guys been to the Big Basin fire since that, or Big Basin Park since the huge fire that happened a couple years ago, it basically moved extremely fast through that canopy and it torched almost all the crowns in, in much of the forest. But over 80% of the redwoods survived and now they look like green fuzz sticks. They lost all their branches and they're just these green fuzzy things. But the Doug fir were all killed. Almost all the Doug fir died in that fire. The redwoods survived, but it's gonna take them a long time to rebuild those crowns. Obviously, we wanna to try to avoid crown fires, but when you have a densely stocked forest and a fire comes in, the chances are it's gonna get into the crown. So we know that as trees enlarge, they become more resilient to fire. So one of the goals, one of the benefits of having a smaller number of larger trees is that they're likely to survive the fire. But in my view, there's no one single solution here. I think we need to combine vegetation management with prescribed fire to prepare these forests for a hotter, more burning future. And I think it's, I am extremely concerned. This is the driest April, well, to this point in the year, the driest in recorded history in Humboldt County at least. You guys got a little more rain than us, but we didn't get much at all. And it's setting up for a nasty year again. So I think that's gonna become the norm. And so so the in, in any of your management documents, is it explicitly called out that you have to consider carbon sequestration or global warming in any of your management guidance documents? This question is from Mark Jensen, retired director of engineering at a brain implant company. Responding is Kevin Conway, State Forest Program Manager. So it's, uh, you know, yes, it's, it's a part of the CEQA analysis. So in every single timber harvesting plan, you know, a portion of Section 5 or 3, you know, in the back there. But, but you were, yep. but, but the, the management of the state forest was for sustainable harvesting. That's why you guys were set up. You guys weren't set up to sequester carbon, right? We did no. recognize it was a growing issue. Our, um, one of the last parts of the management plan that was done was the research plan. This is Lynn Webb, retired Cal Fire forester and research manager. And the four emphasis areas, one of the emphasis areas is carbon and um, sequestration and climate change. Yeah. So by 2016, we'd recognized it and it's a, you know, it's something we're looking at in research. With all due respect, those four pages out of the multi-hundred page document were 
scientifically inaccurate for the time, let alone today. They were, uh, they were uh, almost disinformational. Evan Mills. In the sense of not being aligned with the understanding, there was a lot of, of uh, skepticism. It's unfortunate embedded in there, but I'm, I'm glad it was there. But that's one reason I think these planning documents need to be revisited because the, the expression today from this, of the state of the science would be so unrecognizably different than, uh, than what is in, in those records from not that long ago. Mark Jensen again. I think you guys need new marching orders. You know, your marching orders shouldn't be to harvest forests. And I know your budget is conditioned on getting some wood out to pay for the good management that I see. I know you guys can do a good job, but I just don't see how, you know, right now your goals align with the future of humanity. I, it, it, seriously, it's that, it's that dire. I, I think you guys should be, you know, talking to the legislature and saying you need to change your goals, your management goals. This conversation went on for nearly an hour and a half and then split up into some pretty productive small groups walking around the forest and looking at what was going on. If you would like to hear the entirety of it, go to the Trail Stewards website, mendocinotrailstewards.org, or you can find a link to the entire hour and a half. Now we are going to go to an interview I did last week with Gary Graham Hughes about California's cap and trade and carbon offsets market. Gary is the America's program coordinator with the international organization Biofuel Watch. He works on a portfolio of issues in California and internationally. He is a Humboldt County local currently living and working in the East Bay. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Sociology from the University of Oregon in 1988 and in 2002 completed his Master's of Science in the Interdisciplinary Environmental Studies Program at the University of Montana in Missoula. He is also an occasional host and producer of the show Terra Verde on KPFA. The current big issue he's working on is the conversion of San Francisco Bay Area refineries to high emissions, high deforestation risk, liquid drop-in biofuels, i.e. renewable biodiesel, in quotes. This program is a case study in the governance crisis and supposed decarbonization in the state of California. There's a big hearing coming up before the Contra Costa County Board of Supervisors on May 3rd on both the Marathon Nesti Martinez Refinery Project and the Phillips 66 Rodeo Refinery Project. The North Coast area operates pretty much entirely on the liquid fuels that are refined in the San Francisco Bay Area, so this is something to be watching for. Gary Hughes, thanks for joining us on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing pretty well, Chad. It's really an honor to be joining you on your program here on KZYX. I hope you're doing great and that all the listeners who are tuned in are, are you know, having a great evening. Yeah, yeah. The honor is mine and it's nice to reciprocate. And after being on your show um, a year ago on KPFA. Terra Verde. That's right. I'm one of the collective producing Terra Verde on a I produce it probably on a monthly basis. We're on about once a week on Friday afternoons on KPFA, if people ever want to tune in. It's a great show. We have links to a few episodes on the Trail Stewards website on our media links page. But I have loved covering the issues of the work that everyone's doing um, around, uh, you know, the Pomo land back campaign and Jackson. It's been such an inspiration. So I have done just a little bit of radio. It's so much fun to try to capture this incredible energy that people have generated organizing around the forest defense. Yeah. The show you did on the um, Sacramento rally was great. And um, 
like I said, that is on the Media Links page. It's right at the top of it right now. Well, we're going to talk about carbon offsets today, but before we get there, can you tell us briefly about Biofuel Biofuel Watch and what your duties are as the California Policy Monitor? Uh, yeah, well, um, Biofuel Watch is an international organization that works on addressing uh, public participation, uh, environmental harms, and human rights threats that are embodied in industrial bioenergy. I've been working for three years now with Biofuel Watch. Um, there's a core people based in the UK, and then one of our founders is based in Vermont, and I'm working here in California. And we started with a portfolio of work in California, but actually my position now is called the America's Program Coordinator, mm-hmm. and that we're continuing to work quite a bit here in California, but I've taken on more and more work uh, supporting partners throughout Latin America and in particular in Chile. Um, but as America's program coordinator too, we really try to emphasize to folks that, for instance, the Redwood Temperate Rainforest Ecosystem is one of the most important forest ecosystems on the planet. And then for people to really understand that Sacramento has become a very important international space for the development of climate policy and extractive industry, um, the fossil fuel industry, big timber, big ag, they've, they've zeroed in on Sacramento because they, that's a place for them to really set the game up to favor them in the long run. Yeah, I've noticed we have an interesting dynamic going on where for the Save Jackson Coalition, we have actually gotten a resolution passed by the by the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors. And... Um, we are recording this on Sunday, but Tuesday morning before the show is actually airing, Jessica Morse will be presenting to the Board of Supervisors, and she is um, the Deputy Director, do I have this correct? The Deputy Secretary of the California that- Department of Natural Resources, and she is, as far as I can tell, an ex-spook an ex-CIA agent or somebody who's worked pretty closely with them as part of the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Agency for International Development. And yeah, I, I, yeah, that's definitely raised some red flags uh, for me as well, trying to learn more about her background. Uh, there were um, some instances where I've been really a uh, little bit disturbed by her approach to forest and wildfire issues. And um, yeah, I hope listeners uh, do stay attentive to how uh, some of these really important positions are subject to uh, political pressures that are outside perhaps of the specifics of the, you know, sector that they're working on. Mm-hmm. So. so if people are interested in knowing more, finding out more about Biofuel Watch, where would you direct them? Well, we have a website uh, reflecting the international nature of the organization. It's biofuelwatch, all one word, biofuelwatch.org.uk for the United Kingdom. As well, you can find Biofuel Watch on social media. We have a pretty active team uh, in the UK, again, who are managing our social media accounts. So you can find Biofuel Watch on Twitter. And look on Facebook, and it's a, a really great way to to stay tra- in you know in touch with our organization. Great, thank you so much. So, let's go to carbon offsets and the cap and trade market. Uh, this is obviously a super complicated subject, but 
Could you lay it out for us for the, the average person? What is the cap and trade market? Well, I'm really glad to get into this topic with you, Chad, and for listeners on KZYX, because, you know, the last 10 years with the, you know, basic emergence of carbon markets in, in California, we've seen a real dramatic change in the narrative around what is actually going on with extractive industry and issues like climate change. Uh, people on the North Coast should recognize that there's a couple different kinds of carbon markets that are actually having an impact on our communities and on uh, and our landscapes and not always in, in a positive manner. Um, I've often tried to describe to folks to understand that carbon markets really are doing more harm than good. Um, but there's two different kinds. There's, you know, one kind that's really um, pretty prevalent now and it's kind of exploding everywhere are what we call voluntary markets. And these are totally unregulated markets, but these are the markets that airlines are engaging with when they sell offsets for their flights or when some big corporation says that they're going to go net zero and they start buying offsets. They're looking in this unregulated market. Now, different than that, though, is the compliance mechanism here in California, the California Cap and Trade Program, or also known formally as the Western Climate Initiative, Inc. And the mm -hmm. carbon market in California, though many people in the North Coast may associate forests with the carbon market in California, the, the truth is that the carbon market in California is solely about regulating the greenhouse gas emissions from the major polluters in the state, the stationary sources, as they call them. So mm -hmm. we're talking about electricity generating facilities, but then also the big polluters are the oil refineries. So the cap and trade program um, was, uh, you know, designed and established coming out of the 2006 Global Warming Solutions Act, the famous AB 32. And by 2012, it was starting to be operationalized. And then in 2017, there was a really very controversial extension of the cap and trade program uh, out to the year 2030. And in that extension in 2017, the legislature by law, you know, gave a really libertarian twist to California's climate policy because by law in California, the carbon market is literally the sole mechanism that can be used to, quote unquote, regulate the greenhouse gas emissions from these really major polluting sources like oil refineries. And it actually took the local air district's power away, ostensibly some interpretations of the law, to implement limits on greenhouse gas emissions from refineries. So the point I really want to make is for people to understand that in progressive California, where we're, you know, consider ourselves so green and so advanced with our progressive politics, to understand that the, one of the major features of climate policy here in the state is, is completely libertarian. It's completely markets-based. We're completely relying on this market mechanism to respond to climate. As a matter of fact, when this extension was passed in 2017, uh, famous George Schultz, who had been Secretary of State, mm -hmm. Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan, said, wow, this cap and trade program is something that Ronald Reagan would have loved. So those are some of the kind of more unknown realities around the politics with the cap and trade program in the state. But as you said, it's, it's really complex. So maybe, you know, it'd be good to hear from you about what are some of the questions that you have. Well, 
There's a lot of different, as there are a number of different aspects that I am curious about and that you've actually uh, clarified for me and sent me some good articles. But the one that seems to be really important is, is that I, as I understand it, the mainstream interpretation is, is that forests have an infinite capacity to absorb carbon. And so you could sell as many offsets as you want to offset as much pollution as any, any refinery can produce. And this is not true, is it? Well, no. It's, so there's a couple of things that we should unpack from that. Um, one of the first things, though, is to come back to how on the North Coast, many of us, we think of the cap and trade program and we think of forests, we think of forest offsets or something. But we want to understand that in really in the, in the frame of the cap and trade program, forests are a loophole. Forests are a loophole for the big polluters to continue polluting. Um, the cap and trade program actually doesn't really have anything within it that has to do necessarily with increasing the protection of forests. Um, but forest offsets have been integrated into the cap and trade program. It's, it's not an unlimited number of offsets that a polluter can use. There's actually a restricted amount of offsets that polluters can rely upon in the California cap and trade program. But what a forest offset allows a polluter like Chevron to do is to say, well, because we purchased this offset, we can claim an emission reduction at another time, at another place, in, in another activity, but the pollution still occurs. Now, fundamentally for the climate, what's wrong with that is that the emissions from burning fossil fuels are cumulative in the atmosphere. They keep adding up. And the basic thing about land sector carbon, uh, carbon sequestration uh, with forests is for people to really understand that it can only be understood in the context of past land use change. Mm -hmm. So when a forest is growing back, and is sequestering carbon, it is helping to heal the climate, but it's only helping to heal the climate by making up for the carbon that the forest lost previously. Mm -hmm. It's actually a myth, uh, and it's very controversial in scientific circles that there are people who claim that forests can magically scrub the atmosphere of the emissions from burning fossil fuels. And mm -hmm. the real truth of it is, is that's a, a total misrepresentation of the geophysical properties of our planet. And you're giving forests a power that they, they don't really have. When, when forests are being restored, all they can do is make up for the damage that has been done to the forest. They can't make up for the damage that's been done to the forest and for the damage that we're doing by burning fossil fuels. So unfortunately, there's some... Uh, real, uh, you know, kind of perversions mm -hmm. of basic climate science in California's market-based climate policy. And the cap-and-trade program has been coming under increasing amounts of scrutiny because of these contradictions. Uh, but, you know, the interests that got this passed and who are benefiting from it are, are doubling down politically. So there's still a ways to go in trying to change course on, mm. on these types of mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should back up just slightly. And it's, if listeners are not totally clear, 
the aspect of the cap and trade market or the carbon offset market that is related to forests is, is that, to put it really simply, a polluter bought, pays somebody who otherwise might cut down a piece of forest to not cut it down. And in this case, it's oftentimes said that, oh, okay, this is saving our forest. But that forest might not be cut in the first place because the people who own it might not have any interest in cutting it, but they can receive a, an offset. They can receive cash or a credit for this. Is this correct? Well, yeah, but it's even worse because, you know, one of the big myths about forest offsets, and you'll hear agency officials or elected officials talk about keeping trees standing. But if you look at the rules of the offset protocol for the California cap and trade program is that logging is allowed. As a matter of fact, extensive logging is allowed. Uh, so it's really uh, a lie when people talk about offsets keeping forest standing. There may be some instances, there may be some offset programs where there's remarkable restoration forestry occurring, but we've also seen the evidence of really egregious abuse of the carbon accounting and really extensive logging happening within projects that are qualified as carbon offset projects. Mm -hmm. And there's, um also an assertion that the market is being gamed because at least in California that that credits are sold on the basis of large uh, a map that's very loosely drawn and that if you look at the maps that lots of the projects are right near the lines where it switches over to be a different carbon value can you explain that for us well that's a it's a really interesting piece of research that was done and they talked about ghost credits where essentially yes the protocol was being gamed and some of the project proponents have been able to identify a certain place uh, along the different descriptions of forest types that they have in the forest uh, offset protocol and were able to basically claim more emissions reductions than they were really um, getting. And so this was a study that got a lot of coverage in ProPublica. And actually, if anyone were to, you know, just Google ProPublica and California cap and trade or ProPublica and forest offsets, you'll see a whole list of articles come up. It's been some really important news coverage. What has been interesting to me is to see how little of this news coverage has gotten any discussion up on the North Coast. You were saying that Many of these yeah, articles have had very little discussion. That, that's right. Uh, there was some amazing journalism that happened with this coverage from ProPublica. And unfortunately, it has not been recognized up on the North Coast. And you don't hear any discussion or further distribution of this news coverage. It's getting national and even international attention. Um, so when you say that the market is being gamed, one of the things that we would like listeners to be most aware of right now is that even really pro-market interests who have analyzed the market but have been trying to improve the performance of the market have identified that there's way too much what you could call hot air in the market. And this hot air comes from the fact that polluters have been able to bank credits that they've bought in the past so they can bank credits in an unlimited fashion. They've been able to purchase lots of offset credits and they also receive a phenomenal number of credits from the state 
for free. And mm-hmm. so there are wow. more credits in, posi- in the possession of the polluters now than are even needed from the market for the polluters to meet their requirements to, you know, that the market is asking of them. So there's a chance at this point that we could get to 2030. And as we've seen up to now, the refineries, for instance, these major polluting sources are are not actually reducing their emissions. And in some really, you know, disturbing cases, the emissions are even going up. Yeah, I've read this also that that it seems like with the mechanism of our market in California that uh, that emissions of carbon are increasing. There have been some really important successes in California in terms of reducing the emissions within the electricity generating sector. And we, we know that solar has had a, a, a positive impact on reducing emissions. We, we know that massive utility scale solar and massive utility scale wind have also had some really negative impacts on the landscape. But there's no question that California has had some important success in reducing emissions within the electricity generating sector. But when it comes to the refined fuels that are made uh, you know, here in California, for the transportation sector and all that unfortunately emissions are not coming down um, and they're kind of even flatlining and another really you know complicated aspect to all of this is to understand that california also exports a phenomenal amount of the gasoline and diesel that's fabricated here in the state. So we are also, even as we try to reduce our emissions in the state, we're still exporting lots of climate pollution and it's all ending up in the atmosphere. Anyhow, even as we claim to be making progress here in the state. Yeah. There's one more aspect that I wanted to talk about. And this is that, again, related to forest carbon, because that's our subject on the show, is that California has not provided any numbers, any carbon baseline to international climate monitors. Is this true? Well, this is, has to do with the emissions inventory, the greenhouse gas emissions inventory that the California Air Resources Board is responsible for tracking and generating on an annual basis. Now, a lot of the information that the Air Resources Board provides, for instance, from industrial polluters, we have to have some degree of confidence, though we also know that the polluters themselves can fudge numbers. And there's been cases of, of you know, illegal underreporting by major refineries, for instance. That said, and all, you know, we can have some degree of confidence with what the California Air Resources Board presents us in, in terms of the emissions inventory. But one thing that the Air Resources Board is not counting that would be considered under, you know, international standards, uh, a fundamental aspect of an inventory for greenhouse gas emissions is the greenhouse gas emissions from land use change and forestry. And believe it or not, to this date, there is no effort by California regulatory authorities to provide even a rough estimation of the greenhouse gas emissions that occur due to silviculture, Hmm. or we could say logging. 
And it's really one of these ongoing conundrums uh, because basically the timber industry is being given a free pass in this state. And it is um, really disturbing, no matter how hard we try to bring this up, that uh, the state won't make any effort to just provide an estimation of the amount of greenhouse gases that are being pushed up into the atmosphere by industrial logging operations, which which we know are extensive in the state, um, and it's a it's really it's a major gap in in our emissions inventory. And hopefully, you know, we can continue to put some attention on this and and get some change. But it's uh it's really you know an intractable situation because of the grip that extractive industry has on regulatory agencies in the state. Yeah. We are, as most of our listeners know, working to change the management of Jackson State Forest, which is ostensibly a demonstration forest demonstrating the most modern science. And they're, they're running on an operational environmental impact report that is, most of it is over 14 years old, 15 years old, and it has less, it's a 900-page document with less than 10 pages total addressing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And it is, what it does have is very outdated. And in every timber harvest plan, they have a section, section four, I think it's item G on for a greenhouse gas, where it says what each timber harvest plan is supposed to emit. And it's, they're, they're very dubious. And until recently, at least the, the plans that Cal Fire submitted to themselves, they were filled with climate denialism. And now they're a little different, but it seems very unrealistic what they're putting forth. Well, that Cal Fire climate denialism in the timber harvest plans for Jackson remains one of those scandals that just has not been adequately addressed. Uh, I mean, it is, uh, you know, it's astounding that Cal Fire could have gotten away with using climate denial language in their timber harvest plans and never have to, uh, yet that we've seen really, um, ha- you know, s- face any repercussions. Uh, it's, uh, it is um, pretty disturbing the, the kind of cherry picking of the science that happens by CAL FIRE when it comes to forest carbon. And, you know, the thing about also forest carbon accounting is it's inherently uncertain even in the very best of circumstances, there's a, a massive margin of error. It could be as much as plus or minus 60%. Wow. So, yeah, estimating how much carbon is out there. It's a science that people are constantly putting more energy into, and there's there's lots of efforts to become more and more precise. But it is, by, by the nature of it, it's just a statistical estimation at best. And I guess this is really goes to the heart of you know, the science around offsets and why the idea that a forest offset could quote unquote neutralize the emissions from burning fossil fuels is is really a very dubious concept to begin with, just because there's such, uh, you know, challenges to be overcome, just being able to actually count out the carbon. This, without even getting to what I had said about the fact that we're talking about two totally different carbon cycles. We have a biological short-term carbon cycle. And then we have this geological carbon, you know, fossil carbon that's literally been locked underground for 
millions of years. And so to try to throw it all up into the same pool and the same calculus is uh, it's a false equivalency. Mm-hmm. And this false equivalency is really at the heart of the climate science denial that permeates a lot of California climate policy. Yeah, that actually, how you just put that, it really, it clears things up in my in my head that you've got, on the one hand, that growing plants and growing trees are putting on biomass and sequestering carbon that is bringing them back to a stasis from before when they were cut down. Whereas the fossil fuel, this is something that was sequestered millions of years ago. And the, it can't be re-sequestered at the same rate now. That's right. So, uh, you know, if we want to get into the weeds about climate science too, another thing to think about is so much climate policy is focused on the flows, on the emissions and the sequestration. But mm-hmm. the climate issue really is about carbon stocks. And it's about where the carbon stocks have been moved from. And so we have permanent carbon stocks in old growth, frontier, un- intervened forests, for example, that is, uh, you know, a steady state ecosystem. And those carbon stocks can be considered basically permanent, relatively permanent, pretty permanent. And then we also have the carbon stocks that are locked underground, these fossil fuels. But what we've seen over the last centuries then is that these permanent carbon stocks have been impacted and the carbon has been mobilized and it's all ending up in the atmosphere and the ocean. And so really the climate problem is more of carbon stocks and carbon reserves. And so what we want to do is protect the existing stable carbon stocks. So old forests and fossil fuels, that's why keep it in the ground isn't just some sort of kind of pithy campaign statement. It's, it's fundamental climate science that, yeah. you know, we need to keep those carbon stocks where they are. Yeah. Um, and for us, we want it, we grow it. You know, the, the other thing I'd try to get people to think about a lot in the Redwoods is, you know, we're suffering a little bit from landscape amnesia and the state of California, the regulatory authorities are contributing to this because there's a real denial of what we lost when they liquidated the old growth forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are really, really important carbon rich forests. And when they, you know, went wild on taking out the last of the old growth redwoods. Um, That was really a climate crime. Uh, And so, you know, you need to remember what those old forests were like, because that is what we need to get back to, even though it could take literally millennia, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, we've really dug ourselves a big hole, they say, and the first thing to do is to stop digging. Yeah. Well, on that note, we are out of time, but I really appreciate you being here with us, Gary. And, um, I, I feel cognitively inadequate to understand all of this stuff, but thank you for helping us to, to get a grasp on it. Well, thank you for having me on and, and thanks to everyone who's tuning in and, and let's, let's keep, you know, digging into this because these are really important matters and, uh, we, we don't have, you know, much time to waste. So let's, let's continue to, to look at these issues and prepare ourselves to get in there in the, in the policy uh, trenches and push back on this industry-friendly policy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and we hope to have you back. Thank you.
Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. We hope you've learned as much as we did making this show. To hear past editions, go to www.mendocinotrailstewards.org, the media links page, where you will find all past episodes archived. You can also listen on kzyx.org, archive slash jukebox, or even better, get the KZYX Public Affairs app wherever you get your podcasts. With this convenient click, you can hear any of the many great shows put on entirely by volunteers on KZYX, listener-supported public radio for Mendocino County. We would like to thank all the people who took part in this show and all the people who are out there trying so hard to change the management of this gem of a forest. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge, and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. What we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. The views and opinions expressed here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour represent only the hosts and the guests of this show, not the management or staff of KZYX. I'd like to finish with the words of 12-year-old Ravel Gautier to Governor Newsom. You made a promise to the citizens of California? And if you don't fulfill that promise, being perhaps the one person who has the power to, what kind of politician are you? That is the $50 million question. Thank you for spending the hour with us, and we'll see you next month. The Trail Stewards Radio Hour. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.